What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fedka. And I'm Mark Steeson. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Danny, today we've got a spy story. And it's real life, but it's like a James Bond movie. In 2018, the Mossad carried out an operation in which they basically raided a warehouse in Tehran and stole the Iranian nuclear archives. And I just want to read you a little bit of a description of what, what happened. This is from the New York Times' the story of July 15, 2018. The Mossad agents moving in on a warehouse in a drab commercial district of Tehran knew exactly how much time they had to disable the alarms, break through two doors, cut through dozens of giant safes, and get out of the city with a half ton of secret material, six hours and 29 minutes. The morning shift of the Iranian guards would arrive around 7 a.m., a year of surveillance of the warehouse by Israeli spy agency had revealed, and the agents were under orders to leave by 5 a.m., so they had enough time to escape. Once the Iranian custodians arrived, it would be instantly clear that someone had stolen much of the country's clandestine nuclear archive, documenting years of work on atomic weapons, warhead designs, and production plans. The agents arrived that night, January 31st, with torches that burned at least 3,600 degrees, hot enough, as they knew from intelligence collected in the planning of the operation, to cut through the 32 Iranian-made safes. But they had left many untouched, going first to the ones containing the black binders, which contained most of the critical designs. When the time was up, they fled for the border, hauling some 50,000 pages and 163 compact discs of memos, videos, and plans. So we have today the guy who got to read those 50,000 pages and 163 compact discs of memos, videos, and plans and has written a book about it. I guess we've already had on the show before David Albright, and he's going to tell us what was in those archives and what it means for the future of the Iranian nuclear program. So this is a particularly timely discussion. We are at a critical moment. So as everybody who's listened to us and reads the news knows, the Trump administration pulled the United States out of the Obama-Iran deal. The Europeans didn't pull out. The Iranians were still bound by their obligations, but they immediately began violating them. And one of the things that Team Biden, and when I say Team Biden, I mean Team Obama, but with a different president, has promised to do is to get back into the deal. They have been racing, and those aren't my words, those are the words of all news coverage. Many have suggested that the Biden administration is on the verge of desperate to get back into the deal. There are elections taking place in Iran in June of this year that will completely change the folks who are dealing with the Americans and likely change exactly what's going on inside Iran. So understanding what the Iran deal was, what the Israelis discovered, and the analysis that David Albright brings to this is hugely, hugely important. So just to underscore your point about the desperation, while Israel and Hamas were engaged in combat, where Hamas was attacking Israel with Iranian weapons provided to them by the regime, the Biden administration was and continued to negotiate with Iran in Vienna over this nuclear program. These things were happening simultaneously. Iran was waging a war by proxy on Israel 
through Hamas. And they didn't skip a beat, didn't pause, didn't stop, just kept talking because the Iran nuclear deal is the most important thing. What kind of message does that send, Danny, to Tehran about how desperate Biden is to get this deal back? Look, I think we've talked about this before. This is the projection of weakness to a party that is very sensitive to when the United States is weak. They recognize just how hungry the Biden folks are. And something struck me yesterday. So a lot of people don't remember who Jason Wazian is, but Jason Wazian was the Tehran bureau chief of the Washington Post. He was arrested during the Obama administration. He was tried and convicted of espionage, something he clearly was not involved in. And he was subsequently released during the Obama administration On the day of his release, the administration released $1.7 billion in frozen Iranian funds. And Jason has been a, a pretty warm advocate of engagement with Iran of the JCPOA. So it was especially notable to me. And I want to read you guys a couple of sentences from this pretty important piece that appeared on May 27th in the Washington Post. He said, as someone who has believed and continues to believe in the value of diplomatic engagement to resolve complex geopolitical issues with Iran, in this instance, I think it's time to slow down. Today, superficially, Washington and Tehran's roles are reversed from the state of play under the Trump administration. The U.S. wants to re-enter the deal, and the Iranians appear to be dragging their feet. Biden should just wait and see what happens. He talks about the election taking place in Iran and how it is going to result in a very different set of actors on the stage in Tehran. Well, they just kicked out all the moderate candidates, right? And moderate meaning like, you know, moderate Nazi, right? You know, (laughs) but I mean, all the people who were not don't wake up in the morning and the first thing they say after drinking their coffee is death to America, right? They did do that. Uh, Here's Jason again. The main arguments against employing a slower approach today are that a deal may be available now, but won't be under a more insular administration in Tehran, and that negotiating with the hostile elements in Iran's regime would further legitimize them. This, however, seems like a risk worth taking. Here's how he concludes. The Biden administration has promised a longer and stronger deal. It's a worthy goal that won't be reached by shortcuts. Slowing down to better understand the playing field after Iran's elections could help. Now, this is someone who's just been a really strong advocate of the Iran deal, a very, very virulent critic of the Trump administration. And even he says slow down. That in conjunction with the fact that we have learned so much from the documents that the Israelis stole, I think, suggests that we are headed for absolute disaster if we don't slow down. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say stole, I'd say liberated, (laughs) number one. (laughs) And two, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the Biden administration seems to think that it's gotten into a time capsule and gone back to 2014 and that all we have to do is restore the status quo ante and pretend the Trump administration never happened. Well, a lot of stuff happened during the Trump administration, both in Iran and in terms of our leverage, in terms of the sanctions regime that we placed on the Iranians. So the Biden administration has enormous leverage that it could use to get a better deal. 
to fix some of the flaws that Mike Pompeo laid out when he was on our podcast that were in the original Iran nuclear deal, such as not covering ballistic missiles. You know, we're going to stop you from building a weapon, not really, but you can build the delivery systems to be ready for when you break out of the deal. So there's a lot that could be fixed by any objective standard, including by among people who supported the deal. I would think would acknowledge that there were flaws in the deal and things that could have been improved. And now you've got enormous leverage to use to pressure them to get those. So why don't you use the leverage and get a better deal? Well, I think that's what a lot of people have been arguing. And frankly, I am surprised. Perhaps that's the wrong word. I'm disappointed in the fact that the senior most officials in the Biden administration during their nomination hearings all promised a go slow approach, all promised a more balanced approach, all said it was a new world out there. And yet they have acted exactly as you suggested. The most important thing for me, actually, is not that we rehearse these political arguments. You know, Democrats love Tehran and and Republicans love Saudi Arabia and Israel, but rather that people have a better grasp on what exactly the Biden administration is proposing to allow the Iranians to do and what it is that the Iranians already have know-how to do. And that's what David Albright and his colleagues have really laid out in their new book called Iran's Perilous Pursuit of Nuclear Weapons. David Albright is the founder of uh, an NGO called the Institute for Science and International Security. My favorite is their Twitter handle. You guys have heard me say this before. They call themselves the good ISIS. He's written a bunch of books on uh, atomic weapons, and uh, he has been an advisor to the IAEA, uh, as well as to numerous other uh, inspections regimes for nuclear weapons. He's really a scientist, and you know how We don't deny the science here. He is truly one of the the most knowledgeable people out there about what it is that the Iranians are doing to advance their nuclear program. So it's a delight to have him again. David, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here. Well, we're excited to have you back. You're a repeat offender and we love repeat offenders. (laughs) We're really excited about your new book. So you have written a book that is based on the nuclear weapons archives of the Iranian regime, which was captured by the Mossad in a 2018 overnight raid in Tehran. So first of all, tell our listeners a little bit about that raid and how they got the archives and then how you got access to them. Well, the Mossad seems to have deeply penetrated into the Iranian security establishment, and they look for entities that are not well known except to the senior leadership of let's say the Atomic Energy Organization or the Revolutionary Guard. And in this case, they put a building under surveillance that held an archive that, and this archive, but it had been assembled after the negotiation of the JCPOA. It was an effort to consolidate everything they had. They put it in a facility. The Israelis had that facility under surveillance. The Iranians moved it to this location, another location. And the Israelis made a decision to go in and seize the documents, they were worried that they could lose, just lose knowledge about the archive. They also felt that normally you you may go in, look at it, copy it, try to show the Iranians that it hasn't been discovered. I think they decided that it would be better if they went in and just grabbed as much as they could, and they would have original documentation that they could present to the world and use themselves to better understand Iran's nuclear weapons efforts. And by revealing it later to the world, 
it provides a solid piece of evidence that everyone can look at and say, yeah, Iran's been lying. The raid itself um, went off like clockwork. They use the analogy of Ocean's Eleven, that it was a very sophisticated raid. Hundreds of people were involved in its planning and execution. They pulled it off without a hitch. They got in, they got out. They had divided up the stash of documents among different people, worried that some would get captured. No one got captured. 100% of what they seized got back to Tel Aviv. That's amazing. And how did you get access to the archive? Well, the day Prime Minister Netanyahu revealed the archive, spring of 2018, the Israelis put me on a list to brief. And I was with a group of D.C. experts from varying perspectives on this nuclear deal and heard pretty convincing statement about what, the, what was in the archive. We were free to ask questions. At first, they didn't want to give me any documents. I, I had a series of briefings. The first set of documents I got were from journalists. They were doing fairly detailed briefings of journalists in Tel Aviv. The U.S. group, at least portions of them, were willing to share documents. There was a German journalist who got a briefing that was willing to share their documents. So our first analysis of the, of the archive was, was really based on the documents from the journalists. And throughout this time, I was appealing to the Israelis to share documents with me. And at some point, they decided, and then I ended up taking four trips to Israel to collect documents, got other documents remotely, particularly once COVID became a problem. And we'd created a team of people, translators, other types of, of nuclear experts, safeguards experts, policy experts, people who are familiar with uh, the Iranian system. And, and we spent a couple of years going through the documents and trying to make sense out of them. David, this is an unbelievable piece of work. And I, I imagine this is probably just the tip of the iceberg of what is learnable from what the Israelis took from this cache. But for our listeners who, who are debating how much they care about this, I'd be very grateful to hear the bottom line up front conclusion. One of the things that, that I learn in your book is the absolutely fascinating detail that the Iranians have not, in fact, stolen a plan to make a nuclear weapon or been given a plan. They have developed one. So what would you say are the big headlines from your book? Well, one is what you just said is that they created a, a program to master the design and development of nuclear weapons. So end of the Ahmad plan in 2003, they had a design that was you know, diameter of a car tire. So it was a design small enough to fit on their, their ballistic missiles. The bottom line is they know more about making nuclear weapons than was known before the discovery of the archive. And they can make them quicker than was known before the discovery of the archive. And also, it's a trite maxim, but I mean, you can't really understand the present without understanding the past. And if you do try to do that, you're, you're going to probably make lots of mistakes. The archive provides a very detailed understanding of where Iran got to by 2003 on making nuclear weapons, how it was going to produce them, who was involved. And what we did is we took that information and, and connected it through information developed post-03 by the International Atomic Energy Agency, by media, by governments, to look at the program of how it evolved till today. And it's a program that you see in the archive did not end in 03. And the archive has documents on how they plan to continue in a downsized form, but nonetheless continue. That information can then be connected with the post-03 information to bring you up to the present. And what you have is a nuclear weapons program that's not a traditional one. 
It's not the type of you know, India, Pakistan, South Africa building nuclear weapons. It's a program to be ready to build them and to build them on short order. So it's not a threshold state. It's a very dangerous state, in fact, that knows how to build nuclear weapons and can do so relatively quickly if given the order to do so. David, what is Iran's goal here? Are you suggesting that they want to be a threshold power where they can break out at any time in a very quick fashion, but not actually become a declared power? What do we know about their intent? There's not much known about their intent. I mean, we, we were looking at what was being done in the more technical side of the Iranian military industries. And that information led us to conclude they want to be ready to build nuclear weapons on demand. How the leadership would proceed is hard to know. And they can proceed in two ways. They could order a breakout, you know, a rapid production of weapon-grade uranium. In that scenario, they probably try to do a nuclear test within several months and then let people figure out if they can deliver these things by missile. They could order a sneak out. They could order development of a secret centrifuge plant. I mean, after all, they've had two or three of those that escaped detection for years before they were finally discovered. And, and then in that case, they may not do a nuclear test. So they have great flexibility, but it's up to the leadership to decide. And it's very hard to predict exactly what they would do and when they would do it. I'd like to ask you a little bit about what Iran is still up to that you understand. Now, I want to come back to the question of the JCPOA, the Iran deal and the Biden administration and sort of the politics around that. But before we do that, you and and your co-author, Sarah Burkhard, say that there are as many as two dozen sites that are relevant to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and they they haven't visited them. Now, Iran has sort of gone back and forth. They just did an agreement to allow the IAEA in, but they can always take that right away. So what is the implication of these important sites? Historically, Iran has not been willing to allow the IAEA into military sites, and that's where their nuclear weapons program was located, and that's where their post-2003 nuclear weapons-related work has taken place. They can get in sometimes, and armed with the archive, the IAEA was able to make some very convincing cases that they needed to go into at least two sites, and a third site that Israel had identified as a place where alleged equipment associated with the Imad plan was located. When they went into those sites, they found evidence of undeclared uranium. There was an earlier discovery of undeclared uranium at another Imad site, Parchin. The IA was able to assess with the archive documents that there had been undeclared uranium used at a, a completely raised site called Lavazan Shian. It was raised in 2004 as part of the Iranian effort to cover up portions of the Imad program that they felt had been discovered already. And so you have five sites that were undeclared with undeclared uranium. And we did a tabulation of how many other Imad sites are there. And, and we came up with this list of about 20 or so that would have been involved in pretty significant undeclared nuclear activities. And again, if you're going to understand the present, you need to understand the past. And so we think those sites need to be visited by the IA. And in other contexts, other situations, whether it be South Africa or Taiwan or in Europe, when there were actually there were questions about undeclared nuclear activities, the I would visit all those sites. In fact, as part of their effort to show that Iran's program is peaceful, they have to show that there's an absence of undeclared nuclear activities, materials, and facilities. You can't prove a negative. So you develop this idea of confidence 
in the absence of such activities. And in that you go to the historical sites. And, and more importantly, when you go there, you don't just take environmental samples, you seek out the people who work there and interview them about what actually happened there and what are they doing now? And so that you use that to bridge the, from the past to the present. That's very important to understand, but one of the things about the original Iran nuclear deal that was signed by the Obama administration was that they created these two separate categories that don't exist in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which governs all of these activities, and that's so-called civilian versus so-called military sites. The JCPOA allowed the Iranians essentially to segregate off these so-called military sites. How do we gain any certainty given that a lot of these activities that you're describing take place at what the Iranians claim are military sites? Yeah, and when the JCPOA was negotiated, I mean, one of that was a very bitter battle. You know, is the IA going to be allowed to do its job? That's really what we're talking about. And the powers that be decided, no, they can inspect the dickens out of the declared fuel cycle more than they've ever done in the past, but they can't really deal with the military side and the past nuclear weapons program. At that time, there was a lot of missing knowledge about what had happened in the early 2000s and what happened after that. And when we looked at the archive information, the Israelis told us that half the sites were not known and many activities were not known. And so now you can't make the argument that these sites shouldn't be visited. And, and particularly since five sites that were not visited in any rigorous way have shown up to have undeclared uranium. And so what the risk is now, if you go forward with the JCPOA without dealing with the IA basic questions about peaceful use, is you create a horrible precedent that it's okay to violate the non-proliferation treaty. It's okay not to allow inspections. It's okay to not know if a program is actually peaceful. And so I think now you can't make that argument anymore. My old boss, Don Rumsfeld, had a famous saying about intelligence, which is that there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. Did you discover any known knowns or any unknown unknowns in these archives? There were many things that we didn't know. Suspected maybe they figured if you do a technical analysis, they've got to be there. There are some things that we couldn't find evidence of. In the archive, there's no information about the plutonium route to a nuclear weapon. There's there's information saying, look, we don't, we're not going to be able to make plutonium for a decade, and we're going to study how to deal with plutonium metallurgy, but no clear plans to use the Iraq reactor. I think the way we interpret it is they would get to it eventually, but they were focused on enrichment. We didn't find anything on one critical conversion step in making weapon-grade uranium, and just, it's just not there. And we talk about it in the book. It's just, just missing. I mean, there's many steps, but it was interesting. We couldn't find one. We felt that what the Israelis seized isn't all of it. There were gaps or less information on uranium enrichment than on nuclear weaponization. And there were many questions on the, how, how it happened that the Ahmad plan went from wanting to be an independent parallel to the Atomic Energy Organization to then deciding that it was going to be very much dependent on it. And so the Atomic Energy Organization would provide the low enriched uranium that would be used in the military side in what became known as Fordow to make weapon grade uranium at three times the rate. And so the military side was able to tell the civil side, in a sense, if that's what the Atomic Energy Organization is, 
that you're going to participate in this nuclear weapons program and help us to the extent that we see fit. So yeah, I'm not sure that's the answer to your question, but it, it's some ideas on how to answer your question. <laughs> it's, it's a very hard question to answer, and it is the one that has bedeviled our efforts to get the Iranians to step away. One of the things that I found really interesting, um, because it really was at the heart of some of the criticism of the international deal with the Iranians, was how effectively they have actually managed the delivery system. So missiles were not part of the original Iran deal. The Biden administration has sworn up and down that they're going to get back to it. But you detail that Iran is maybe already capable of so-called miniaturizing its nuclear warheads, which means that, you know, unlike, for example, the Pakistanis at the inception of their nuclear program didn't have a delivery system. They talked about putting it on a bus or sticking it in a plane and trying to figure out how to drop it out. The Iranians have solved that problem for themselves already. And you have some more details about that. That's right. The Iranians very clearly thought of the what we call the three pillars of nuclear weapons, the fissile material, the weapon-grade uranium in this case, the weaponization, the, the making of the device itself, and then its integration into a ballistic missile. And all three were present through the Ahmad plan. And they made great strides on mastering, putting the warhead into a, a ballistic missile. The Shahib-3 was their chosen delivery system. And that's why they had this warhead that's you know 55 centimeters in diameter, it was enabled to fit within the Shahib-3 reentry vehicle. And they had a whole program designed to master that. The sense was they didn't quite finish, needed more work to do. But I think if you make a conservative estimate, if they started right now within a year or two years, they could have a reliable warhead for a ballistic missile. If they've continued and done more work, then we know they may be closer. And, and in fact, that's part of the answer to Mark's question is Iran hid things over and over again. There's so many cases where Iran hid things. We probably should assume they've hidden more than we've found. And in fact, it's, the onus should really be on those who claim nothing more is there, no more progress than what we see has been done. The onus should be on them to show that they've actually haven't missed something often they turn it around that it's our responsibility to find these things before we'll consider these things. And I would say that given Iran's history of hiding things, we probably should more assume they really have still hidden things that we still haven't found. Well, David, it's a little bit of a known unknown, but based on your research and your reading of the archives and your estimates and all your study of the Iran nuclear program, how long would Iran need to break out and become a nuclear power that could threaten other countries with the nuclear weapon? If they do break out, they'll probably, we would assess they'd probably race to test. And that, and that could be done in a half a year, nine months at most. I mean, that's, we didn't find any evidence they were, had continued building an underground nuclear test site. They were siting one during the Ahmad plan and they were developing the equipment so they could do yield estimates and doing the experiments to, to be able to do yield estimates. So they fully understood the need for an underground nuclear test site. We're not sure what they've done post 03 we know people are looking, probably it'd be a more of a horizontal tunnel. Ahmad was a vertical shaft design. And so there's questions on how much they've done since 03. But in six to nine months, we feel pretty confident they could test an underground nuclear explosive. We have trouble estimating the time 
to put a reliable warhead on a ballistic missile. I mean, we're not the best in our team on understanding all the steps Iran needs to do to finish its mating of a warhead into a reentry vehicle. And the Israelis did not want to cooperate with us on that. And so we left it as, you know, a year or two, they could have a reliable warhead on a ballistic missile. So let's talk a little bit about some of the assumptions underlying our re-entry into the JCPOA. Donald Trump obviously pulled the United States out. The Iranians not only violated it as a result, but escalated their violation very seriously, most recently moving their enrichment to 60% enrichment of uranium, which is well on the way to uh, nuclear weapons grade. And the assumption that underlies the U.S. coming back into this is, A, that Iran would come back into compliance, but B, that the Iranians would not be able to use the respite that they receive, in other words, the time that they receive, to continue working behind the scenes. One of the inferences that I make from this book is that Iran has sufficiently computerized its efforts to obviate the need for testing, that they have mastered a whole series of aspects for the production of nuclear weapons, that they would not need to actually produce them except on demand. And so this is really what I worry about. Give me your assessment of the wisdom of rejoining the JCPOA as it was signed in 2015 and what you think the Iranians will be able to do even if they re-enter. You mentioned 60% enrichment. I mean, I mean, the way I interpret that is because they have no need for 60% is they're practicing breakout. 60% enriched uranium could be used to make a nuclear explosive. I mean, it requires considerable amount, but nonetheless, it, it could be used and Iran could probably design the warhead to do that. But in addition, I think it's a way to practice breakout. I don't see how you take that away from the Iranians if you reconstitute the JCPOA. The IE's Director General Grossi has also said more needs to be done. You can't just go back to the JCPOA. There's, in a sense, too much water has gone under the bridge in terms of knowledge gained, experience gained, hardware created, putting in a line to make uranium metal, which they were banned to do. They've made advanced centrifuges. And Iran has been resisting destroying all that infrastructure or those centrifuges. I mean, that was a red line for them in the JCPOA, no destruction of centrifuges. Well, if you don't destroy these tens or maybe even a few hundred new centrifuges, you haven't returned to the situation. And no one knows how to take away what Iran has learned on making advanced centrifuges, learning to do more on making uranium metal, gaining experience, I mean, and enriching up toward 90%. And, and that I think is something that has to be thought through very carefully. And the IA would probably just apply more verification. It certainly would want to have more access to military sites where these secret activities could take place, more access to the, in a sense, the centrifuge-related manufacturing complex to make sure that more centrifuges weren't made than would be eventually declared by Iran. From my point of view, I think it, it makes sense to slow down and think more holistically about what we should be gaining out of this. And I would integrate the efforts to improve the JCPOA. I don't think the Biden administration wants to start again, but there are many things that can be done to fix the, the weaknesses of the JCPOA. And ultimately, you do need a new deal. And I think it just behooves us to slow down and um, take better stock of what's happening. 
Well, when we had you on last time, you argued that the Biden administration would actually have a great deal of leverage from the Trump sanctions and from the Trump maximum pressure campaign, and more leverage than we probably had when we were when the Obama administration was negotiating the JCPOA. So how would you use that leverage? What would you ask for? What would you demand in order to make this a deal that's worth signing and worth entering into? Yeah, and one of the, the questions the Biden administration people haven't answered is if they do go back to the JCPOA, drop most of the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, how would they ever get the Iranians to re- reverse themselves? I mean, literally reverse themselves and agree to have a longer, stronger deal. I mean, there wouldn't be much left in terms of leverage. So that it's another argument to, I think, to slow down and start to figure out what is the best way forward. And you know, from my point of view, you want to recreate the sense of there shouldn't be any enrichment or reprocessing in the Gulf region. I mean, we have to worry about Saudi Arabia, and then you have to worry about ultimately Egypt and Turkey. But you should start from that perspective. And so you certainly want, if you feel you can't get that, you want longer time for nuclear limitations. You want to let the IA do its job. I mean, if Iran isn't willing to address the IA's concerns through granting access, allowing access to personnel, because mod plan documents are littered with names hundreds of names of people working in the mod plan, many of whom went to work for these post-mod organizations we discuss in the book, including this, the current one, SPND. But if the Iran isn't willing to let the IE do its job, why would you want to deal in the first place if you can't tell if there's a nuclear weapons program today? So I think that's a critical one. You also, you could put parallel pressure through accelerating work on what's called Section T, which is very innovative bans on nuclear weapons related work. And that could be taken seriously. It's not been taken seriously so far. And, and there's you know several other steps. I mean, it's a long list of things that could be improved, including not destroying that Iran has to destroy excess centrifuges, maybe shut down the Fordow plant. And these are red lines to Iran, but nonetheless... U.S. has a lot of leverage and it should have a vision. And I would say have the vision guided by determinations that it's a peaceful program and that the vision is no enrichment and no reprocessing in that part of the world. Exit question for me. Towards the end of the Trump administration, president took out Qasem Soleimani in an airstrike. Essentially, Soleimani has proven to be irreplaceable. There's nobody who stepped into that role quite the way he was able to do it. There's also uh, the head of the Iranian nuclear program, Moshin Fakhrizadeh, also met his end and reportedly in a Mossad operation, where that hasn't been officially confirmed. How essential was he to the Iranian nuclear program and how much has his elimination set it back? Yeah, one of the interesting things for me of this project on the book was we had the resources to hire translators and interpreters. And it was fascinating to me to listen to the commentary by Fakhrizadeh's colleagues after he was killed. What emerged was a picture that certainly was beyond my understanding at the time. He he was viewed as the father of Iran's indigenous nuclear program. They can't talk about nuclear weapons, but they were actually pointing that he was deeply involved in not only the nuclear weapons program, but also in the entire indigenous nuclear program, including the Iraq reactor. So he's a very important figure. In In the nuclear weapons effort, we see him as the Leslie Groves of the Iranian program, the manager, the one who has influence with the leadership, who gets the programs funded, gets them carried forward. And one of his close colleagues, and actually one of his mentors uh, in terms of physics and, and nuclear science, said that he had taken a position in 1998 
and he was head of the precursor of the Ahmad plan called the Physics Research Center, and that he kept that position for 22 years while ministers of defense came and went, he stayed and had the position of assistant or deputy minister of defense. So he was an institution in this whole program. And so I think his death set them back. Unfortunately, the other thing I learned in these commentary by his colleagues was the Iranians had thought early on about training their own people. And all these major leaders of the Iranian nuclear weapons program were also university professors, highly dedicated to bringing students along. And so unfortunately, there probably are people who can take his place. We'll see if it's as effective, but it's a program that realized that succession was critical and has been working on that since the 1990s. David, this is my exit question, and this has been absolutely fascinating. So if I take one message away for the Biden administration, it is slow down, right? This matters. Get a better deal, because otherwise Iran has loopholes that it can really make its way through. If you had one thing that you wanted the public to understand more clearly so that they are seeing what's going on more outside the political context, what would that be? Well, I think the one critical thing is to really see the need to empower the International Atomic Energy Agency to get access and make that a red line. No access, no deal, no reduction of sanctions. It's risky from a government point of view. But I think we need to know if they're going to build nuclear weapons. And the JCPOA does not prevent Iran from building nuclear weapons. But the IA can in a sense, force a conflict over this basic question before we give up most of our leverage. David, thank you so much. Thank you for this terrific work, first of all, but also thank you for spending the time with us. We really, we love it. No, no, thank you. Enjoy being on your podcast. Here's the thing that I'm not getting about the Biden administration. I was hopeful that in many areas, the Biden administration would learn from the mistakes of the Obama administration, right? So we had Jack Keane on, and he basically said, you know what, I don't think Biden's going to pull out of Afghanistan, because these are the same guys who presided over the Iraq withdrawal, and they saw what happened there. So they're probably going to go slow when it comes to withdrawal from Afghanistan. Eh, Wrong. (laughs) We're getting out as fast as we can, pulling everything out. And now here we are again, with the Iran deal, where the flaws of the Ron deal are there for all to see, even its advocates acknowledge it's not perfect. And you have all this leverage that they got from the Trump administration maximum pressure policy, which they don't have to take the blame for having imposed the sanctions, that crazy lunatic that we just threw out of office did it. But now they've got the leverage, they ought to be using it. And it doesn't seem like they are. I don't get it either. And, you know, look, the negotiator, the chief negotiator here is a guy named Rob Malley, head of the International Crisis Group. We've talked about him on the podcast before. I consider him a friend and I, I, I like him personally, but he really has been overeager. Wendy Sherman, who is another part of the negotiations and was last time, is equally overeager. I think that the problem is that they are trapped in an ideological approach that is uninterested in the facts, uninterested in what Iran is going to do with the money, uninterested in how Iran is going to press its advantage. And what is the best example of that? Best example is the second that Biden came into office, he took away the terrorism designation for the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. What did they do? 
they immediately set off attacking civilian sites in Saudi Arabia, attacking civilian airports. There have been any number of those attacks. What did they do? They immediately pressed for money to go to the Iranians for quote unquote humanitarian purposes. Now what happens of course, when they get that money, well, they don't have to spend it on food and on COVID relief, they can spend it on supporting Hezbollah. And in each case where the Iranians have escalated, including by the way, with Hamas, as you mentioned in the intro, the Biden administration has basically said, you're not gonna distract us. You're not gonna push us away from this deal. We're gonna let you do all of that because we just see this deal as so important. Well, you know, what lesson do the Iranians take from that? The reality is that I talked in the beginning about how these parallel things were happening where Hamas was firing Iranian missiles at Israel and the Biden administration was negotiating a deal that would have given Tehran the money to replenish the missiles. It's like they're in this cocoon where they're not paying attention to all the things that have changed in the Middle East since they were last in office. They're like, okay, we're picking up where we left off. Trump never happened. Finger in the ear, la, 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 never happened, didn't exist. We're back to uh, back to where we were. You can't function that way. And in the Middle East, a lot of things improved for the United States since they uh, took power. You have four Arab-Israeli peace deals, which happened because they want Israel's help in dealing with a resurgent Iran. So you have a lot more pressure on Tehran now, both economic and diplomatic, than ever before. And Tehran's goal is to blow all that up. And so I don't understand why they're not using the leverage they have and why they're behaving as if nothing has changed. So here's another problem that we touched on. And that is that because this JCPOA, this Iran deal is multilateral, what we see is we see Biden administration with its hair on fire. Forget the Abraham Accords, forget all the rest of that, forget our leverage. We see the Russians and the Chinese grinning And we see our allies in Berlin and in Paris and in London, who are also part of this deal, wondering what, if I may coin a phrase, the hell is going on, (laughs) trying desperately to slow these, these nut jobs in the Biden administration down and not being able to succeed because they are so hell bent. When you are in the same position as Moscow and Beijing, on dealing with Iran, and you are lined up against Germany, which has been so weak on everything, Paris and London, which has been pretty tough, especially the French, you know you're in a bad place. And I don't think we're going to stop this train. Well, on that depressing note. (laughs) (laughs) That's become our sign-off line. And on that depressing note. The world is very depressing these days, Danny. I know. These are depressing times. We are absolutely disgustingly inundated with cicadas. And so for every single one of you outside the East Coast, all you can say is yet another time. Thank goodness we are not with Mark and Danny in Washington, D.C., which not only has all of these doofuses running our government, but also has all of these disgusting flying creatures around us. And it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to review, subscribe, send to your friends, send us criticism. No, send Mark criticism, compliments to me, and you know you know where the tech stuff goes. You Thanks know again, you get guys. most of the complaints, Danny. I only get love letters, Mark. <laughs> you write yourself. Take care, everybody. No comment. Bye, everyone. Our producer is Alexa Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. 
Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellatai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.